This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. We have learned now that global trials of a COVID-19 vaccine have proven to be 90% effective, raising hopes that the end of the pandemic could be near. Pfizer is expected to apply later this month for emergency use FDA approval on it. But there are still a lot of questions that remain to be answered because experts during this pandemic have raised and quashed hopes on a lot of fronts, and they have made some truly terrible recommendations along the way. Just ask your small business owner neighbor who had to close his doors because of all the lockdowns. Well, we are not out of the woods yet, but it is time to examine the human cost of the COVID-19 pandemic response, which, as you know, has been significant. And here to do that today is Dr. Jay Richards, Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute, Research Assistant Professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America, and co-author of the book we'll be discussing called The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. Dr. Richards, so good to have you here. How are you doing? Just fine. Thanks, Janet. Yeah, you say this coronavirus panic wasn't so much inspired by the deaths that we all saw all around us, but by the World Health Organization favoring that flawed model from the Imperial College London. Can you tell people about that? Because I think that's kind of been lost along the way. It has. I mean, if you remember in March, I mean, we hadn't had very many deaths, so it can't have been the actual deaths that were causing this. In fact, um, if, you, if you actually looked at the few hundred deaths we had, say, in, in early March, it, it didn't even figure uh, prominently compared to, say, the flu. But what happened is that this Imperial College London model, which a computer model is just a predictive model based upon assumptions that you put into it, came out in late March. The director of the World Health Organization glommed onto it. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci glommed onto it. And that's where we got this number that 40 million people would die, 2.2 million Americans would die unless we locked down the economy. In fact, that's what Dr. Fauci explicitly told President Trump. President Trump later explained that. Well, that, those numbers, it was, that wasn't data by definition. It was a projection of what w- would happen if we didn't lock down the economy. The problem is within a couple of weeks, we realized the model was based on false assumptions. It assumed, for instance, that the so-called infection fatality rate for the bug was about 3.4%, which would have made it worse than the Spanish flu pandemic of a century ago. Well, we now know that that's, that's nowhere near the case. In fact, it, at most, the infection fatality rate is about 0.26%. So, you know, it's, it's well over 10 times overestimated how deadly the bug was. Nevertheless, the policy prescriptions, the response, all that stuff got set into motion based on the response from the projections rather than the actual evidence that was before our eyes, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, you're totally right about that. In fact, I was looking at some of the latest stats and I found that 10.2 million cases have been found in the United States, 239,000 deaths. So that means roughly 10 million people have recovered. And yet we're still 
in this whole pandemic thing, talking about more shutdowns, national mask mandates under a President Biden. I mean, what what is giving here? Because it was supposed to be 15 days to slow the spread. And that just kind of went the way of the horse and carriage, I guess. It did. I mean, that was the initial argument was, look, epidemiologists said we're not going to be able to stop a virus like this for any long period of time. But maybe if we do some drastic things, we can slow it down for a couple of weeks so that we don't overwhelm the healthcare system. Okay, whatever you think that sounded plausible at the time, it was supposed to last two weeks because they realized you're going to get the same number of people, people that remember that flattening the curve image. You had the same area under both curves. The idea is we just slow it down a little bit. Well, the argument seamlessly shifted to no, now we'll stay locked down in order to prevent the bug from spreading. And here we are in November. And until the news broke yesterday, I guess with Pfizer, we were being told, well, let's wait until there's a vaccine. The problem is, is one, there was never any evidence that population-wide lockdowns actually work, that they do what they're supposed to do. And in fact, the World Health Organization denied that they did what they were supposed to do. And two, as we point out in the book, we analyzed the states that locked down against the other states and other countries. And there's no evidence that the government imposed lockdowns actually made a difference. And so at this point, it's really just kind of it's anti-evidence to still be talking about the merits of a lockdown. Totally right about that, because you had states like California that were very totalitarian, in my estimation, and yet the mask mandates that they were doing and the shutdowns they were doing longer than some other states didn't seem to quell their rise in cases. No, exactly. And that's the irony. I mean, of course, people always just want to compare one state to another. And so you can always do that. You can cherry pick the data. But if you look at all the states and all the countries and compare them with respect to lockdowns, the irony is that if anything, there's a strong correlation. Uh, The more lockdowns there were, the worse the death toll. Now, we're not saying that's causal. Nevertheless, if you actually are looking for evidence that the lockdowns help that they reduce the case curves or deaths. There's absolutely no evidence that they did. Right. So after we saw the 15 days come and go where we were to slow the spread and keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed, people got nervous, as I'm recalling, because you Mm -hmm. saw the numbers of cases going up, bringing us to a spot where it seems like we're almost more worried about case-demic than we are about pandemic, if you just look at the stats on the deaths. Absolutely. I mean, right now we're doing well over a million tests every single day in the United States. So there's a story to be told about just the industrial capacity that allows us to do that. The problem is, is if you're testing a million people a day uh, and the virus is still out there, you're going to get a lot of positive tests. Right. And what we've done is the media has redefined positive tests to mean case. Cases used to be people that were sick and symptomatic, went to the doctor or the hospital and then got tested. Well, now we're just calling mostly asymptomatic positive tests. We're calling them cases and that's what we're focused on rather than focusing on okay what what are the actual deaths being that are being caused by this which is what we should be focusing on well yeah now so when we're talking about the tyranny of experts a lot of people have been very critical of dr fauci for example for having changed mm-hmm. his story on things like masks and there was a picture of him sitting in a baseball <laughs> field stands with the mask off yucking it yep. off while the rest of us are walking around with these things on our faces what was the role of experts in botching this whole thing and they played the crucial role. In fact, I would say, okay, look, there's kind of evenly dispersed blame in the People's Republic of China for letting this thing get out and then covering up what was happening. Uh, there is a blame to what we call the tyranny of experts. The problem is not expertise. It's, it's public health officials who have the posi- are in positions where they can advise presidents and prime ministers. They bear a lion's share of the blame. And then, frankly, media and social media, which created this wide-scale panic so that Americans – 
you know, according to a poll in July, Americans guessed that 9% of the population had died from COVID-19. The, the right answer is 0.06%. So Americans think it's 150 times more deadly than it actually is. Well, where did they get that impression? They're not reading PubMed. They got that from the media. Well, that's exactly right. And that's where a lot of people just get their information is they just look on their smartphone and then they look, look at whatever accounts they're following and then that's what they believe. But that's problematic, isn't it? Because when we're seeing more and more of this moving toward a one message media, that's a scary thing for the country because it's getting more difficult for people to hear alternative explanations, which actually may be truer than what they're reading. No, that's exactly right. I mean, I have to tell you, Janet, that uh, in some ways my own political perspective shifted a bit when I was working on this book because I just realized the unchecked power that not just the media, really the social media giants, the big tech giants, they essentially control the flow of information. And as a result, I mean, we're living through the first planet-wide social contagion, which was very much uh, magnified and amplified by social media. And now when you need to have an important scientific debate, these social media giants decided that they're, they're going to call, uh, you know, fouls and strikes based on whoever they happen to prefer. There was never any agreement about lockdowns, for instance, among actual scientists mm. from the beginning. But unless you kind of knew how to do research already online, you wouldn't know that. You just assume that whatever Dr. Fauci is saying, he won the gold medal of science and just listen to what he said. It's, uh, that's not how science Work. That's not how science works. And it's very disturbing to think that Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg think they are so brilliant that they can discern what is misinformation and what isn't, which is in large measure really determined more by political preference, it would seem, than actual data. Absolutely. I mean, that's what's so weird. You know, I'm sure your listeners know about the Great Barrington Declaration a couple of months ago. It was yeah. a group of scientists that thousands of them now they happened to come out the same week our book came out saying less, more or less the same thing that we did, which is there's no evidence that lockdowns work. Let's focus on the high risk populations, elderly in nursing homes. And yet they've gotten marginalized, even though they're at places like Harvard and Yale. It's crazy. We're going to go to a break. We'll be back with Dr. Jay Richards. The Price of Panic is his book. And we'll return after this on Janet Meffer today. What's it like when a pregnant mom sees her baby for the first time? It all came down to the ultrasound. And I saw this little lima bean looking thing with a halo, which I thought was incredible. A baby wasn't really in the plan for this young mom. After seeing a halo on her baby on ultrasound at a preborn center, she was still leaning towards abortion. And I got to hear the heartbeat and I got chills. In that moment, I just felt God's arms come around me and hug me and tell me that it was going to be okay. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Ultrasounds save lives. Would you join with Preborn in helping moms to choose life? For $140, you can help rescue five babies' lives. And now through a matching gift, your gift is doubled, rescuing 10 babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229. 
Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Thank you for joining us. Dr. Jay Richards is here, research assistant professor in the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America and co-author of The Price of Panic, How the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe. And you were mentioning this Great Barrington Declaration that has been modified, shall we say, by big tech, the power of the oligarchs to be able to shut down misinformation, as they call it. Others of us would call it uh, good information that we need to have Mm -hmm. to really adequately respond to this pandemic. But you think two of the the doctors who assembled on the steps in Washington and they've been they've been marginalized as well they've been shut down and they've had videos removed off I think it was YouTube and so yep. forth it, what is the motivation here is it really about health when you when you see those sorts of things taking place well inside their minds I assume it's probably about health but I think what it really is is about the control of information I mean I think they they actually imagine that they're helping things but the reality is look no one knows thinks Mark Zuckerberg has, is an expert in epidemiology. And so what exactly do they think they're doing? Um, that, well, I mean, you know, I, I, most of what has happened, I think you can sort of assume people's motives are sincere. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is not utterly devastating and destructive. And I think that's the real problem. And honestly, I mean, I, I realize that the reason that big tech has, has been allowed to do this is because of this, this regulatory privilege they have, the so-called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, in which they're treated for regulatory purposes as if they're neutral platforms, but they have started acting very much like publishers with very specific political points of view. And so as a result, it's actually very hard now for other companies to compete with them. I honestly think if they had that provision removed so that they just get treated like publishers, they'd either decide, okay, no, we'd rather be neutral platforms and they'd cut it out, or they'd keep doing this. And then actually, I think real competitors could rise up because people still want neutral platforms. But not right now, we don't have it. Yeah. And I think we're just right at the edge of of these guys, frankly, having so much power over the flow of information that it will be impossible to stop them. Well, and and here's another point in all of this. When you look at how some of these governors responded, and it did kind of vary between red and blue states, but you see, for mm-hmm. example, what happened with the Orthodox Jews in New York. And you had yes. de Blasio acting like a total, you know, nut job going after the Orthodox Jews because they wouldn't cover up with masks, etc. He was out there celebrating the Biden presidency. <laughs> I mean, hello, what what is going on with that? And then you had over in California, you have Gavin Newsom allowing abortion clinics and liquor stores mm-hmm. to remain open. But boy, those churches better stay closed. So that's when people get suspicious and say, how much of this is just pure politics when it comes down to it for some of these guys? I think for these guys, it, that is a sign that it is basically politics because you see 
um, that they're not actually sincere. Look, if you're, if you're locking up Orthodox Jews, but then you're happy to yuck it up, as you said, you know, with the crowds uh, sharing champagne in the streets, that suggests a, a fundamental lack of sincerity. And in that case, we're talking about, uh, you know, we're talking about politicians, and you're rarely sincere anyway. <laughs> I do think, though, just from judging, you know, I live in Washington, D.C., and walking around the streets, that fully half of the, of the American public is genuinely terrified. And that's not their fault. Everybody can't be an expert on this. And that's the real damage, because if half the population thinks all of their fellow Americans are potentially going to kill them with this deadly bias, <laughs> virus, that, that's, a, that's a serious social cost. And it's something that I think is going to take a while, unfortunately, to unwind it. No, you're right about that. So when we're talking about turning this pandemic into a catastrophe, at what point do you believe that occurred? Because clearly we've seen thousands of businesses go under because of these lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that issue a bit? Definitely. And I think I'm inclined to be forgiving uh, for the actions that happened in February and March. You know, we didn't really know what was happening. And if we'd really just stuck to the two weeks, that would have been a significant cost, but it would not have done the damage that the lockdowns have done. So if you just count that first three months of lockdowns, we estimate that the lockdowns cost about a trillion dollars a month to the U.S. economy, uh-huh. just the U.S. economy, a trillion dollars. It's a huge amount. Now, that's a, the money's not the point. The point is that's human well-being and prosperity and jobs, right, and right. rent. Uh, we think probably about seven, there'll be 75,000 or so excess deaths of despair as a result of the lockdown. So mm-hmm. suicide, alcohol, drug uh, overdoses. Probably about 80,000 missed cancer screenings just in the three months, uh, the first three months of the lockdowns. And that's not even counting things like, you know, heart disease and stroke. All these uh, other illnesses that were out there that are essentially getting missed because we had closed up the hospitals, opening them for the, you know, the, 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 the flood that never really happened. You very quickly get to the point in which you actually cause more deaths from the lockdowns than are actually killed from the coronavirus itself. And that's just the very definition of a terrible public policy when you do as much or more damage from the response as the thing you're responding to. Yeah, it was terrible what happened. I think we're going to be talking about it for years. The other thing that comes to mind is something that's increasingly being discussed. You had the World Economic Forum come out Mm. a little while ago talking about the Great Reset. And this is an Mm -hmm. opportunity in the age of COVID-19 that we can recalibrate the world economy and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this is global governance (sighs) stuff, and it was freaking a lot of people out. What is your take on that? is that it's real. Um, honestly, Janet, we are finishing up the book um, at, at the, in the early summer, and I started hearing about this, and I thought, oh, this sounds like a conspiracy theory that you'd get at a, like a self-published book at a gun show or something. <laughs> and well, you know, all you have to do is Google it. You know, you just kind of click a couple of times, sure enough. Now, it's one thing for a few opportunists to say, oh, now here's our opportunity, you know, to sort of grow the state. But that there could actually be this plan from the World Economic Forum to kind of fundamentally reorder human existence it's absolutely terrifying. And that's why I honestly think that's something you can't quite quantify. But how do you quantify or determine the value of the fundamental loss of freedom, both in your country and around the world? That's why I so oppose this language of sort of getting used to a new normal. We argue in the conclusion of the book that what we want to do is 
we want to fight against the brave new normal, which is what we think people are talking about. That's good. But of course, if Joe Biden does uh, get sworn in as president and right now it's kind of up in the air, what's going to happen with the election? But he has all kinds of draconian ideals. He's talking about making it kind of a new normal. People are going to have to accept face masks. What drives me crazy about that is that even the CDC and the WHO have been very clear about the kinds of masks that really don't work and they don't really protect you. They talk about the validity of the N95 masks, if you have sure. symptoms, you know, there is science to be had on this. Why are we all capitulating to this idea that if we wear these little neck gaiters or these thin little, you know, things you could buy for 99 cents at the grocery store, that's going to be the difference between life and death and you contracting COVID-19? I mean, what are your thoughts on the whole mask mandate situation? Well, it's it's really ridiculous. I mean, first of all, the president of the United States doesn't have the, even have the authority constitutionally to be able to mandate that. But the idea that we just call save the word mask and mandate that, it, if you look at the literature on this, which is extensive, as you said, yeah, if you have a properly fitted N95 mask, you don't have a beard and it doesn't have a valve on it and it's clean, then it will probably reduce transmission. But almost everything that everybody's actually doing makes almost no difference. That's why the CDC and the World Health Organization said early on the messaging was terrible, but it was like, ah, it doesn't really make sense for people to wear a mask. The reason is there's just so many things you have to do right for it to really make a difference. I think, honestly, at this point in most places, it's just sort of a visible sign of compliance. And once authorities have, have issued these mandates, they have a very hard time unwinding it. But honestly, Janet, it's as long as the population complies, it will go on. And as soon as the population decides not to comply, it will end. Yeah. Well, and you look at the survival rates of coronavirus, which we already touched on a few minutes ago, and you think to yourself, how does this end, though? Because we're never going to get rid of the flu and we all just go on with our lives. Some people get shots, some people don't. Mm-hmm. Do you see this vaccine, if this actually becomes a reality, being something that will begin to be mandated on the population? Because that's the next worry a lot of people have. I do think that they will be. I mean, unless, uh, you know, everyone just just decides to sort of change their argument, I can see this absolutely being mandated. I'm sitting loosely. It'd be great if there's a 90 percent effective vaccine that's perfectly safe for everyone to take. Um, But there's never been an FDA approved vaccine in history for any coronavirus. And so there's really serious obstacles to overcome. It's, of course, in Pfizer's interest to to advertise this. And so I'm keeping an open mind. But I absolutely think uh, we'll get a mandate for this. And for most people, this, this coronavirus has so little risk that it just wouldn't probably even be rational to get a vaccine unless you were compelled to do it. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to an epidemiologist I know who was saying, even if you exactly what you just said, coronaviruses are going to be here. But but really what you ought to do is be protecting the most vulnerable population. So the elderly, it's kind of like we do with Mm -hmm. pneumonia and the flu and things like that. It doesn't seem like they're really being logical about this. And the question I have beyond that is, you know, this is hardly the Black Plague. We mourn every death, certainly. But this is not the Black Plague where millions of people are dropping dead the instant they contract the virus. What happens if we actually do get to a point where we really do have a Black Plague situation? People are going to be so fed up with being masked and locked down. Would they even comply if there were a truly you know, serious virus, much more serious than COVID-19? Well, I think that's probably one of the greatest costs to what we've gone through. It's that what if cost. The danger with a public health emergency is you don't want 
it's sort of the boy that cries wolf problem, yeah, right? The first right. time we say, okay, well, let's comply. But when everybody starts looking around and you realize this is not what they told us, then all of a sudden we get something that is truly devastating. A lot of people are going to be justifiably skeptical. And that's honestly, that's why public health responses should always be calibrated to the real danger involved because you don't want to do that. You want to be able to hold your cards with respect to public health emergency in case you really need to use them. And unfortunately, at this point, they've sort of already blown their wad. What do you think is the answer on combating the new normal that a lot of people want to impose on us? I think part of the answer is that all of us wake up and realize what's actually happening. I think once a critical mass of the population realizes that, refuses to comply, I don't think governors are willing to, they're not going to force 10,000 people into jail in their states. That's not going to happen. Uh, We need to have a rational conversation about the real risks. I think policy-wise, we absolutely need to be focusing on those people that are most at risk. It turns out the people most at risk are also least likely to be in school and least likely to be working. And then let the people that are working in, in school get back to normal life and to use their, their local knowledge to decide how best to respond to it. I think that's very wise. Dr. Jay Richards, The Price of Panic, great book and great to talk to you again, Dr. Richards. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Janet. All right, you take care. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. So during this pandemic, you may have noticed that the face masks are getting more creative and sometimes more colorful. People are even putting messages on the face masks, which is their First Amendment right. So why can't a third grader wear a face mask to school that says Jesus loves me? Lydia Booth School District in Mississippi said she couldn't wear it. And now Alliance Defending Freedom has filed suit to reinstate her First Amendment rights. We're going to get more details now from Tyson Langhofer, Senior Counsel and Director of the Center for Academic Freedom with Alliance Defending Freedom. Tyson, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Janet. Sure thing. Tell us a little bit about Lydia and her situation with the face mask. What happened here? Yeah, well, as you said, Lydia is a nine-year-old third grader at Simpson Central School, and she's been, you know, going to uh, class um, and wearing a face mask as required by the school. And and throughout most of the semester uh, up to this time, she had worn a face mask numerous times with a Jesus loves me message on it because uh, Lydia loves Jesus and she actually wants to be a, a, a missionary. And so she just loves to tell people about Jesus and she, she wanted to wear this mask. And she didn't think anything about it because many other students were wearing um, masks with messages on them and uh, sports logos and, and things like that. And, uh, but one day, uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, her teacher told her that she could no longer wear that uh, mask because um, uh, the school prohibited religious messages. Oh, brother. Well, did they have any sort of mask policy in place when the kids went back to school that would tell them up front, you can do this, you can wear this, but you can't wear this? 
Yeah, it's a great question. No, the answer is no. I mean, they had a they had a uh, policy for returning to school, and that policy simply said that all students are required were required to wear face masks in the public areas of the school. That's all it said. Um, so when she came home that day, Lydia and told her mom. Her mom started researching it, and she couldn't find any rules prohibiting it. Um, and so when she talked to the principal, she said, I, I don't understand. There's no rules prohibiting this. And in fact, your policies say that students don't give up their First Amendment rights. And Mississippi has a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which prohibits their rights to speak religious messages. And um, the, uh, the principal said, no, it's, it's prohibited. Um, and so when she talked to the superintendent the next day, the superintendent sent her a revised COVID policy, acting as if it was the normal one, uh, and that a new provision had been added to the mask with mask policy, which said you cannot have religious, political, or other uh, offensive messages on them. Oh, please. That's shifty. Well, when you're talking about the law there, the reference to the Mississippi Student Religious Freedom Act, tell people a little bit about that law, because certainly the district has to act under the confines of the law, even if they don't like it. What, what sorts of freedoms do the students enjoy because of that legislation? Well, it says that, that religious people uh, or religious messages cannot be treated differently than secular people or secular messages, and that if you, are, if you are imposing a law which infringes on somebody's religious rights, they have to satisfy a very high standard, meaning, and they cannot do it to target your religious belief. Well, we know this was specifically targeted for religious belief because it said no religious messages. That's, wow. that's excluding religious viewpoints, and it's targeting religious viewpoints while allowing secular viewpoints on the same subjects, and we know that that's unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has held it unconstitutional numerous times, so not only is it protected by the First Amendment, but also by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in Mississippi, because the bottom line is the First Amendment says that elementary school students don't forfeit their religious freedom when they walk into the school building, and the Supreme Court has upheld that principle numerous times. Right. Well, this is interesting because, as I understand it, there were kids who were wearing Black Lives Matter masks. Are they still allowed to convey that? That message on their masks, or were those banned as well? Well, it, it's it's. Uh, I think the policy is enforced unevenly. I would say. Okay. Right? So, um, you know, uh, there are. She Lydia has a brother who's in high school, and she, and he's seen all kinds of political message ma- messages on masks. Um, and, and messages both before and after. And so, you know, it's, it's on a hit and miss basis. But what we do know is that the only specific viewpoints targeted are political and religious. And obviously political is a subjective term, and so is religious, really. And so that, that type of targeting is not okay. If the school wants to say no messages on masks at all, they, they may be able to do that. But what they can't do for sure is say we're going to allow messages, but we're not going to allow religious messages or we're not going to allow certain types of viewpoints um, on the mask. That's a problem. And the other problem is they still allow messages on shirts. So what's the difference Mm -hmm. between allowing messages on shirts but not on uh, masks or allowing them on backpacks? That doesn't make any sense. There's no interest that the government has in shutting off messages on masks but allowing them on shirts or backpacks. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm curious, did Lydia's family get any sort of information that would have indicated somebody complained about her face mask or there was a teacher or somebody on staff who doesn't like Christianity? I mean, did, did they ever get any indication that someone in particular was offended by her mask? They did not. There were no disturbances at all. 
Um, and in fact, after, you know, the, prior to being made to remove the mask, the prior Thursday, Lydia had been told by a teacher, you can't wear that, um, you can't have messages on masks, but she didn't make them remove it. And so Jennifer was uh, surprised by this, her mom, and, and, went, and went to Facebook and said, hey, does anybody know about this policy? Is there something out there? Nobody knew anything. And she said, well, I'm gonna, she's going to continue wearing this unless I find out different. So when she wore it that next day, um, that's when she was told to remove it. And so the principal called and said, I saw your message on Facebook. I knew about this. And so she was apparently looking out for this and went and targeted Lydia after that and said, I understood you're going to wear this mask and, and you're no longer allowed to wear this mask. And this is Mississippi, not New York. It I is. mean, that's significant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. It absolutely is. And that's why Jennifer said she was absolutely shocked. She said, you know, she had no idea. She never in a million years thought that this message, which is really a self-directed message, right? It's Jesus loves me. It's not saying about anybody else. It's just saying a truth that Jesus loves me. I mean, it'd be no different than saying, you know, what if she had, my mom loves me. Would they have targeted that? Well, no, of course not. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it is surprising that it's in Mississippi. Um, and it's scary, you know, that, that our public schools in a place like Mississippi can be singling out a, a little nine-year-old girl that just wants to say a positive message like Jesus loves me. So, you know, because it's really not about a mask, right? It's about a public school telling a little girl she can't wear a mask with a message that's really important to her. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I'm curious because we know when there have been a lot of these different cases in public schools as to having a Bible or having a Bible study. For example, if you have a Bible study, you can have Bible study before or after school, those sorts of provisions. Are there any court precedents, court precedents that fit into the whole overall picture of religious speech in school. You're talking about the targeting of religious speech and you can't do that. But as far as during the school day, can you communicate a Christian message as a student? What What is the law on that? Yeah, so it's a good point. Back in 1984, Congress actually enacted what's called the Equal Access Act, which was specifically designed to protect Christian students' rights in campus as it relates to Christian student groups, because what was happening was schools were saying, well, you can't, we have all kinds of clubs, but you can't have Christian clubs on campus because that somehow violates the Establishment Clause. And the Congress said, absolutely not. Religious students have every, the same exact rights as all other students. And since 1984, that's been the law, meaning that students that can meet in groups to discuss secular subjects, you know, students that are, want to discuss religious subjects have those same rights. And that law has been upheld time and time and time again by numerous courts by, uh, you know, when schools have tried to skirt that. And so not only do you have the First Amendment, which where the, the, the um, Supreme Court has said that students don't shed their constitutional rights when they go into a public school, um, you also have Congress, which acted back in 84 and said religious students have the same rights as all other students. Well, that's as it should be, and I'm glad to see that that continue to be upheld. I hope it will here. Where do things go from here, Tyson? What is next in this case? Yeah, uh, so we'll be filing a motion for preliminary injunction actually today, asking the court to um, enter an order very soon, really quickly, prior to the end of the case, um, ordering the school not to enforce this policy against Lydia and, and allowing her to wear this Jesus Loves Me mask to school. And so hopefully, um, you know, we'll have a hearing on that fairly soon. And, uh, you know, hopefully the court will agree with us that this is a violation and, and it should be stopped. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because clearly there are a lot of other kids that will be grateful that somebody stood up and did what Lydia is doing and what you guys are doing at Alliance Defending Freedom. And we're really appreciative of everything you guys do. Tyson Langhofer, thank you so much for the update. We'll be praying for a good result. 
Thanks, Janet. Thank you for being here. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Mabel walks 18 miles to church every Sunday. She lives in Zimbabwe, where churches are widely scattered in remote regions of this African country. That's one reason why she travels so far. The other reason she walks nine miles each way is that the gospel has truly captured her heart. After coming to faith in Jesus Christ, Mabel reads and studies her Bible, and she's discovered that the gospel is meant to be shared with others. So with the help of Bible League International, she's learning to share her faith, and she's helping to see a church develop closer to her village. Bibles are desperately needed in Africa and around the world right now, and you can send one to a Bibleist believer today for only $5, or $50 will send 10 Bibles. Become a Bible sender today by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. A burning issue worthy of public discussion across America is expanding the Supreme Court. Our government was designed to have three independent branches for an effective system of checks and balances. Court expansion would undermine the independence of the judiciary branch and make it a political arm of the legislative branch with partisan results. Watch a new video on the critical importance of the Supreme Court in ending abortion. Visit lifeissues.org and click on the top banner. Hi, this is Janet. It's been exciting to see so many of you help our ministry partner, Heart for Lebanon, this month. We had a goal to help bring the hope of Jesus to 100 families, and I'm so pleased to be able to tell you that to date, over 200 families have been served. We thank God for those of you who participated, but if you didn't have a chance to invest in what God is doing there, it's not too late. Just call 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I am just unsurprised, but just baffled at how the left is behaving in light of the fact that the Trump administration is pushing forward with litigation to try to ferret out the ballot fraud and the voter fraud that's been taking place across the country. Uh, This is an article from Ezra Klein over at Vox. Trump is attempting a coup in plain sight. (laughs) project much, Ezra? Okay. Yeah, the coup is kind of like the Russian collusion was coming from Donald Trump and not from Hillary Clinton and the DNC, which paid money to get that fake dossier uh, and, and do all of their havoc in the wake of all that and put the country through a ridiculous impeachment hoax. This is what the left does, though. And here's another example of this. Good old John Brennan. Good old John, I voted for a communist back in 1976, Brennan, the former CIA. CIA director who I believe was the same guy that Roger Stone said should be hanged for treason. Okay, Roger Stone, keep in mind, it's Roger Stone saying something like that. He was quite angry. But be that as it may, we have to look at what Brennan had to say when he went on CNN with Chris Cuomo. I don't even want to ruin this for you if you haven't heard it. Uh, One of the things that they were discussing was the decision by President Trump to fire the defense secretary, Mark Esper. And according to the Federalist, this 
this follows the decision that Esper made back in June to refuse Trump's wishes to use the Insurrection Act to go into cities like Portland and quell the rioting in the name of so-called racial justice. So Esper said in a press conference, I don't support invoking the Insurrection Act. Trump wasn't happy with that. And in August, per Trump's orders, Esper promised to withdraw some of the U.S. troops from Afghanistan before the election, but was hesitant to actually carry out the president's orders there also. So there were obviously some problems between Esper and and the president. But, you know, these people serve at the pleasure of the president. It's true of every single president in history. So boo hoo. But Brennan didn't like it. And so this was the question from Chris, Chris Cuomo. Is this Trump just being Trump or what am I missing here? It's kind of a vague question, but you got to hear what John Brennan said. Cut one. They're missing what is a very, very worrisome development. It's clear that Mark Esper was removed as Secretary of Defense because he rebuffed Donald Trump's efforts to politicize the U.S. military. And I think it's quite apparent from the reporting that Mark Esper has stood up to Donald Trump repeatedly. Who knows what else he has refused to do? And the Secretary of Defense position is, I think, the most consequential position in the U.S. government aside from the President of the United States, because it is the Secretary of Defense who carries out the orders given by a president for military operations. And if Mark Esper has been pushed aside because he is not you know, uh, listening to Donald Trump you know, carrying out these, these orders, uh, who knows what his successor, this acting secretary, Chris Miller, is going to do if Donald Trump does give some type of order that really is counter to, I think, what our national security interests need to be. Unbelievable. Right, because Barack Obama never politicized the military pushing the LGBT agenda on the military. And all of a sudden, all of these chaplains were targeted for their hate speech, quote unquote, in preaching sermons involving sexual fidelity per the Bible. Yeah, there was no politicization of the military whatsoever. And and when we go back to some of the terrorist attacks and Fort Hood and everything that happened with that, no, there was no politicization of the military whatsoever under Obama. It's all Trump. No, that's not what's going on here. I just laid out for you some of the very valid reasons that Trump didn't want Esper in that position. And it's just gaslighting here, what Brennan is saying. And then it really goes off the rails. This is starting with Chris Cuomo. Cut to 70 days. You know, he'll be gone in 70 days anyway. Once the Electoral College meets, and we have the inauguration. 70 days, you can do a lot of damage in 70 days. He still is the president of the United States. And is he going to carry out these vendettas against other individuals? As you pointed out, Chris Ray or Gina Haspel or others. It is clear that Donald Trump is trying to exercise the power because he can, and he is going to settle scores. But I'm very concerned what he might do in his remaining 70 days in office. Is he going to take some type of military action? Is he going to release some type of information that could, in fact, threaten our national security interests? So I think people need to be looking very carefully at what he's doing. And unfortunately, Republicans in Congress continue to give Donald Trump a pass. All right. So this is the key question. What can be done Uh, Short of him messing with the Electoral College and trying to have Republican or friendlies pick their own electors and, you know, go grand scale with faithless electors, what can be done to stop anything he wants to do in the next 70 days? Well, if Vice President Pence and the cabinet had an ounce of fortitude and spine and patriotism, I think they would seriously consider invoking the 25th Amendment. Um, and, you know, pushing Donald Trump out because he is just very unpredictable now. He's like a cornered cat, tiger, and he is going to lash out. And the fact that, again, that he has the powers of the presidency in his hands is quite worrisome. 
Now, we, we know that uh, the Attorney General Barr has uh, done Donald Trump's bidding in the past. Will he continue to do that vis-a-vis uh, -vis this election? I don't know. But I do think it's something that the members of Congress, the leadership of the Republican Party, really needs to send clear signals to Donald Trump that if he goes, uh, continues to go along this path, they are going to put up roadblocks. Unbelievable, isn't it? Right. In the name of patriotism. In the name of patriotism, Trump's VP and the cabinet should invoke the 25th Amendment and strip President Trump of his powers. Never mind the fact that President Trump is doing what he's doing at the moment in view of the deep state and all of the corruption, the vast corruption that has been present from day one with this resistance movement that's on the left. Forget all of that. Forget the voter fraud. Forget the ballots. Forget all the nonsense that has been going on in all of these states. All the lawbreaking that has been done in these states that has to be sorted out because it's the rule of law. It has to be sorted out. Trump has never said, regardless of who wins the election in actuality, I'm staying put. He's never said that. But we have had words from the Biden spokesman about the fact that we will take any trespassers from the White House and throw them out. We already have Joe Biden, according to, I believe it was Ben Rhodes, saying that he was talking to foreign leaders. Talk about a violation of the Logan Act. Wasn't that what they were trying to invoke against President Trump falsely? Brennan, of all people, Brennan is the one saying this. Let me just remind you a little bit about John Brennan. Of course, he did vote for a communist. Uh, he was also the guy who was bemoaning, oh, this isn't terrorism. This isn't terrorism. Remember that whole thing with John Brennan? OK, John Brennan, as Mark Thiessen pointed out in a uh, piece at the Washington Post in March of 2019, he was talking about the Trump-Russia collusion hall of shame and the news that Robert Mueller didn't find that the Trump campaign or anybody associated with it conspired or coordinated with the Russian government. Remember all that? He talked about all the people who ought to get it now. Schiff should be gone. Trump called for Schiff, the House Intelligence Committee chairman, to resign. He called for, you know, all kinds of people to get in trouble. Swalwell, uh, uh, Swalwell and Jerry Nadler and Richard Blumenthal, etc. But then he says the most sinister of all is John Brennan, who used his authority as former CIA director to suggest that Trump was a traitor and a compromised Russian asset. After Trump's Helsinki summit, Brennan declared, quote, he is wholly in the pocket of Putin. When challenged by Chuck Todd on Meet the Press, Brennan stood by his assessment. He said, I called Trump's behavior treasonous, which is to betray one's trust and aid and abet the enemy. And I stand very much by that claim. Then Lawrence O'Donnell told Brennan this investigation was developing while he was still on the job and said, did you see enough at that stage to believe that this would result in indictments? And Brennan said, yeah, I thought at the time there was going to be individuals who were going to have issues with the Department of Justice. Yes. He wrote in a New York Times op-ed, Trump's claims of no collusion are in a word hogwash. Now, meaning March of 2019, after Mueller discounted the whole thing, he feigned contrition. He said, I don't know if I received bad info, but I think I suspected there was more than there actually was. I'm relieved that it's been determined there was not a criminal conspiracy with the Russian government over our election. And then remember what happened just a little while ago with John Ratcliffe showing the notes from Brennan indicating that the whole thing was Hillary Clinton's idea. We're going to go after Trump. We're going to try to pin it all on him. And it was to divert attention from her homebrew email server scandal and keep the attention on Trump bad guy, orange man bad, orange man bad. And Obama knew about it. Whatever came of that? 
whatever came of that. But let's talk about throwing Trump out of the White House. Let's do that before we even know if all of these allegations of widespread election fraud have any legs. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo actually came out yesterday and said there's going to be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration and kind of smiled, which is pretty cheeky. Makes you wonder if they know something that we don't yet know, but they're certainly not going to lay everything out until they go to court and all of these filings are put into place. But you got to kind of wait for it all to come out. In the meantime, you have the mayor of Washington, D.C. telling all the businesses, oh, you can unboard your windows now. Don't worry. There's no, no riots, no problems. That's funny. I thought all these people were rioting and looting because they wanted justice, racial justice. Did that all get solved because Joe Biden is allegedly going to be the next president? How do they know this? They're amazing. It's just amazing. Racial justice goes up in smoke. Racial injustice and the calls for more justice in the name of race. I guess it just doesn't become an issue at all anymore. Amazing how that works, isn't it? Pray for this country. It's not over yet. Thanks for being with us on Janet Meffer today. We will see you next time.